today on the subject of uh, lukewarmness, or if you like, apathy, as opposed to wholeheartedness. And we're going to look at the church, which is a church where the body of Christ is heading, which is Laodicea and the end of days as, a, as they approach. The attitudes and the problems with this church are going to be reflected and the biggest problem with Laodicea, you can have a look at the scripture here. Christ is commenting on them. And they're a rich church. They're a comfortable church. And the problem is their idols. Their idols are comfort and complacency. And God's wanting to try to get through to them. But he's outside the church knocking on the door trying to get in. And so he's speaking to these people about being lukewarm. And you say you're rich, but God's opinion is they're poor. So it's obviously rich is not a a question of what size your bank balance is. But he goes on to say that you're you're not only poor, but you're blind and you're naked. Now, how can you be blind and naked and not know it? To understand that, I've had to go back to to the root of it, to Genesis. And this is an important section that you grasp, especially young people, because you're going to face this battle all through your life till Jesus comes. And if you can get a hold of the principles taught in uh, Genesis, it'll be a big help to you. And you see in Genesis 14, 17, Abraham's returning from defeating a king, Kedal Lomar, and the kings that were all allied with him. And the king of Sodom Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of the king's king's way, or the king's valley. Now, I want to give you the background of that. Lot, Abraham's nephew, had been kidnapped by these kings, and they'd stolen all his goods and all that they owned, And they'd gone around the whole area, raiding people, taking them all captive, taking all the possessions. And Abraham got together with his servants and all the locals, and about 300-odd men went to rescue Lot. And this is now Abraham successfully rescuing them, and he's coming back to Sodom, where all the goods were stolen from. And this king of Sodom comes out to meet him. But, here's the key, before he gets to Abraham, God intervenes. And I went too fast. What he did was he made sure that someone else met Abraham. And that was a king called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, his name means righteousness. He's a king of righteousness and he's king of Salem, which means peace. And he's also a priest of God. Now, in the Bible, nobody ever held kingship and priesthood. God always split them up. You're either a king or you're a priest. But this man, he's got the lot, the priesthood and the kingship. And he comes to Abraham and he blesses him. And he gives him bread and wine. Now, why did he give him bread and wine? It's a bonding museum, like a mother feeding its child. 
when it feeds at the breast, it's bonding with the parent. Now, Abraham's coming to Melchizedek, taking the bread and the wine, and he's internalizing it, and God is blessing him, and it's being imprinted onto his soul. Now, the thing with, uh, with this sort of thing, what he did then was tell him, he was the, about the God who's the possessor of heaven and earth. And he emphasized God is the possessor of heaven and earth. So Abram's got that message. Then, only then, can the king of Sodom come. And the principle is Christ is always first. He never takes second place to Satan. And then the king of Sodom comes. Now, you can pick up from names if you wanted to research in the Bible, and you'll find that the king of Sodom, it means burning with lust. And the king from this particular city was a man called Bera. And his name means son of evil. So it gives you a bit of an idea before you've even met the guy that this is not a good person. But he comes to Abraham and he offers him all of the goods that have been taken. He says, you can have it all, Abraham. This is yours. I just want the people. I'll keep the people. Why did he want the people? You see, the real value, because behind Sodom's king, is Satan. And he's after your soul. And he wants the souls of man. But God values a human soul above all the money and gold and jewels in this world. Just one soul is more value to God. And he tells Sodom this. He says, I have raised my hand to the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. So what he was told by Melchizedek, he now counteracts the temptation that's coming to him from Sodom. Now, this is a temptation you will face as a Christian. You can't avoid it, and you are going to need to use the same principles that Abraham learned to take God's word and counter Satan's temptation in the shape of king of Sodom. <coughs> now, once he's done that, he's, he also adds something to him. He doesn't give him the people. He keeps the people and releases them. But he also he's making sure that nothing touches him from Sodom. And he said, I won't even take a shoelace from you. The thing is, he's prepared to take only what comes from God. And if God gives it to me, fine. If God makes me rich, fine. If God doesn't want me rich, then I'll stay as I am. But I'm not going to go chasing riches for, because what happens is you open yourself up to that spirit that Sodom operates out of burning with lust and covetousness and you cut off God's spirit to your own heart. Every time you take from Sodom, he's got you. It's a trap. And you can't avoid it unless you keep your focus on God and you make sure it's only God's giving you something you know, you get this all the time in our world. You can go and buy tickets for the Golden Lotto. Or you can buy shares in the latest great uh, thing in the share market. But behind it all is Satan and the king of Sodom tempting you to rely on the money 
and the, the wealth instead of on Jesus Christ and being content with what he gives you. One of the problems that God faces with uh, blessing us, and he wants to bless us, but he blessed Israel. And look what Israel says in Hosea 12, 8. I'm rich. I've become wealthy. My wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. He's become wealthy by his own efforts, and he's bragging about it. He doesn't acknowledge he got the wealth from God. And uh, it's not, I haven't put it on the overhead, but further on in Hosea, God says to them, they were filled. And they had everything they needed, and they forgot me. That's the problem with the riches. And you can have a million dollars, but in God's eyes, you're a poor man. See, with, with money, there's nothing wrong with having a million dollars, as long as you're holding it in your hand. And God can take it and use it. But here's the problem. Say, for example, in just an imaginary situation, some rich uncle leaves you a million dollars. And you think, no, this is great. I'll be good and I'll give 10% to the church. That'll help the church. So you say to God, yep, I'm going to give 10%, God, to the church. And God says to you, well, look, why don't we change that? Instead of you giving the church, giving me 10%, you give me 90%, you keep 10%. What's the reaction? You evil spirit, get behind me, Satan. You're not going to get my money. But then God says, hey, that's not Satan, that's me asking for the 90%. And then the response, oh, Lord, you're not going to take all my money off me. I was so looking forward to spending it. What's the wrong with that attitude? It's I've got it and I'm not letting it go. And that's exactly the attitude that God can't bless. It's got to be open in your hand. You want 90? Lord, yeah, 90. I've put in the poor widow, because uh, Christ made a point of uh, telling his disciples what she'd done. And this old woman put in half a cent. That's all she had. Everything that she owned was in that half cent. And Christ said, she's going to give more than anybody. See, it's not the money, it's the heart. And if I can't give with my heart to God, he doesn't want it. It's no good to him. The other thing that, uh, apart from the riches... These people were poor because their heart was poor. It's all a heart issue. Now, this, this, they're also blind. How do you go blind? This is where, you, you know, Israel is a classic example. You've got Pontius Pilate who's trying his, uh, Jesus for, on his, for his life. And he says to the Jewish people, because he doesn't want to convict him, he says to them, look, Behold, your king. 
and he didn't get the response he wanted. So then he makes it very clear to them. He said, will I crucify your king? And they turned around and said, yep, away with him. We'll have no king but Caesar. Now that was a ridiculous response from Israel because they were looking forward to the Messiah coming and freeing them from the yoke of uh, of uh, the Romans. <laughs> now, why did they do that? They'd gone blind. Why? Because they were so filled with hatred and with malice towards Jesus that they were prepared to publicly accept Caesar as their king rather than Jesus. And they got another chance when the Pilate said, I'll, I'll release one prisoner to you. You can have Jesus, or you can have Barabbas. And their response, Barabbas was a terrorist and a murderer. And he said, give us Barabbas. We will not have this man to rule over us. They understood what the issue was of kingship ruling over them. And they, then they compounded it. If you've ever wondered why the Jews are all hated, because they turned around and said, let his blood be upon our heads and the heads of our children. So with those words, they cursed the whole Jewish race. The thing was, because of the hatred, they're blind. It's amazing. They could study Daniel, and they correctly worked out from Daniel the timeline for the arrival of Messiah. And they correctly worked out he's going to be arriving. I think they were about a couple of weeks off. That's all. And there he was standing before them, and they couldn't see him. And it's a, that's a sort of frightening thing, that you can be blind and you don't know it. And what are you going to have to do? You've got to look at your heart and say, what's my heart attitude towards things, towards people? towards the church. Because if that heart attitude isn't right, then the veil starts to come down and you start going blind. <clears throat> this is what Christ said in Matthew twenty-three sixteen. I didn't put all the verses in because basically what all the verses were saying to the, to the people when he's addressing the Pharisees, he's saying, you're blind guides. You're hypocrites. You're blind. He goes on, the next verse, blind, you're blind, and blind, you're hypocrites, you're blind. They couldn't see, even when the Messiah was there. That's a tragedy. And this church at Laodicea, this is the problem with lukewarmness. It's so easy to fall into that trap. Comfort, complacency, I think as Liz mentioned that, she was going to preach my message. <laughs> and and that, that's all it needs to take for it all to just slowly creep upon you and you're not even aware of it. The prophet Isaiah, he predicted in Isaiah that gross darkness will cover the earth and gross darkness the people. That's happening now. You can see it more and more, the darkness coming in. It's a collapse of spiritual discernment, of character and integrity in the human race, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. 
nation after nation is turning around and legalizing homosexuality. And Christ said it's going to be just like the days of Lot, where they're surrounding his house and all the homosexuals are trying to get in the house. That is prophetic of the church's situation at the end of days. We're going to have the homosexuals surrounding the church trying to get into the church. Jeremiah tried to get through to them. Hear this, you foolish, senseless people. You've got eyes, but you don't see. You've got ears, but you don't hear. You can't get through to blind people. They won't listen. They don't understand. You've got to... You've got to do it yourself. Look at your own heart. and Say, hey, is my heart attitude correct here? Am I holding anything against anyone in my heart? Because if you are, you're going to get in real trouble and you won't know it. You won't know you're blind. You won't find out. What the people did was just made broken systems. What does it mean to make a broken system? Well, I don't like this church. They preach all these words... I'll go down the road where I can get my ears tickled. I can hear much better things that really are not going to challenge me, not going to make me realize I've got to do something here about the way I'm walking, the way I'm uh, living my life as a Christian. And they're broken systems. They're no good. They forget, forget God. And it's like Elijah with Israel all over again. They're all worshiping Baal. And Elijah's saying, listen, make up your mind going to worship Baal, fine, worship Baal. You're going to worship God, then you worship God 100%. (laughs) He also called them donkeys. A donkey, when it's in heat, will just mate with anyone. Anything on four legs, that donkey will mate with them. And it's a very, very stubborn animal. You You can beat it half to death and it won't move. It's really stiff-necked and stubborn. And Jeremiah equates the church with that. That's what they're like. Now, if Israel's there for our benefit so we can learn from their mistakes, we need to be real careful and study what they did so that we don't make the mistake. We can learn from the mistake. (coughs) This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. See, the problem is subjective. What does it mean to be subjective? It means every action that you take, every behavior, is all predicated in one direction self interest. And the problem here is that it leads to self-righteousness. Spurgeon, 120 years ago, brilliant preacher, and he looked right down through the century and saw the direction the church was going in. You can do that with God's word when you get enough light to see and to discern and he said, the time's going to come when the shepherds are no longer going to be feeding the sheep. He says, the clowns are going to be entertaining the goats. 
That's going to be the church at the end of days. Clowns entertaining goats. If you look at Genesis, have I got it in, I don't know, 41, 36. Anyway, in Genesis 41, 36, Joseph is warning Pharaoh that there's a famine coming. And he says to him, look, you've got to prepare for the famine, store up grain for seven-year famine. And they listened to him and did it. Now, the prophet Amos is warning us that there will be a famine in the end of days, but it's not going to be a famine of food. It's going to be a famine of the word of God. So we've got about a seven-year period in which we can get that food into our lives before it's too late. Because as it says, we can walk in the light as he is in the light, but we need the the food of God's word because the word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Okay, uh, I've gone too far. I'll leave that. We'll, t- we'll turn. We'll finish with the uh, with the lukewarmness, and just think for a moment of the problem that you're facing. I can look at the congregation. Now, I'm going to verbalize this, but it's not, it's not verbalized. And I, say, I can look over here and say, oh, these people, they preach heresy. If it was me preaching, I would never preach heresy. These people that are song leading, their songs have got no scriptural content. If I was leading the preaching, that song would have scriptural content. These people here aren't praying properly. They don't do it right. Now, if I was leading the preaching, it would be done properly. See, what's happening, I'm putting myself up there and everybody else down here. And when I do that, I'm suffering from self-righteousness. And the problem with self-righteousness is you're taking off Christ's righteousness and putting on your own righteousness. And you're naked in God's eyes. See, what does God want from us? He doesn't want us all in this like this. You've got to bring that self-righteousness down below that level. Why? Why does God say to you, regard others as better than yourself? It's a safety. You're not going to get all puffed up and up here with self-righteousness if you're looking up at others and seeing them as better, and that's what we have to be as a church, looking at others and seeing them as better Christians than we are. And it doesn't matter who it is, it should be a natural response from our heart. And if you find you're getting the looking down on others because they're failing in some area that you're good at, you need to do a heart check and come back down and see them as better now that's enough of the uh, doom and gloom with the uh, lukewarm. I want to look now at uh, a good example of wholeheartedness. And 
I really liked the example of Rahab. Because Rahab had nothing. She was uh, a Gentile. She was female in a land where females didn't get uh, to the front of society. She wasn't even in covenant relationship with God. And she was a harlot. You couldn't start out with more strikes than that. And then she was in Jericho, which was a stronghold of sin. Now, when God wanted to get Israel into the promised land, the first thing he had to do was take them and deal with that stronghold of sin because they couldn't get into the promised land unless they dealt with the sin first. And here's, here's this lady, Rahab. She was a very perceptive lady. She watched what was happening with Israel and saw how God led them through the Red Sea, saw how Pharaoh's arm was, army was drowned behind them, and then he saw how, you know, three million people living in a desert for 40 years. How on earth can you feed and water and clothe that amount of people? And God did it. And she's not silly, this woman. She's working this out. God's on their side, not ours. So she makes a really good decision. She said, I'm going to switch sides. I want to be on God's side. He's the one that's going to win this. Now, the people of Jericho had the same opportunity that Rahab did, but they didn't take it. They were quite happy and complacent where they were, and they had big, over 20-foot-high wall, and then there was a flat area of earth, which is where Rahab had their houses, they built along there. Then behind them, there's another 23-foot wall. So this, these were a real stronghold. And Israel didn't have climbing ladders or scaling engines to, to, to defeat this place. It was a real stronghold. And yet she still said, nah, I'm backing God. Now that meant, you think about it, her home was there, her business was there, her income, everything that she had was in Jericho and dependent on Jericho's survival. But she turned 100% and put a whole heart into it. No, I'm going to change. I'm going to head for God. Now, one of the things that God did, I think, he saw her heart, and he looked at the hearts of all the people in Jericho. She was the only one that he could do anything with. So he sent these two spies right to her door. That's so typical of God. And when they came to her door, they were looking for them. So she hid them and told the people that were looking for him, oh, no, they're not here, they're gone. <laughs> and then later on, when they came back still looking for them because they couldn't find them, she said, oh, look, they went that way. And she sent the spies off the opposite direction. Each time, she'd made her commitment and she stood by it. And then she went and they said to her, look, what do you want? And she said, I want my family saved. First priority. She wanted her family saved with her. They said, okay, get them all in the same room, and as long as they're there when we come, they'll be saved. But you've got to put two scarlet threads outside the window. The scarlet threads that were put outside her window was her way of acknowledging the atonement of Christ on the cross. What the high priest used to do, he had a red sash, and he cut it in half. 
And on the Day of Atonement, he put one half on the sacrifice that was to be killed, and the other half went on the Azazel, the goat that was to be led off into the wilderness and pushed off a cliff there and killed. And she acknowledges God. She's got her family together, and they put their trust in him. And we all know the outcome. That was the only house left standing when the walls all collapsed. In fact, I think the archaeologists, I saw a photograph of Jericho when the archaeologists found it. You can still see Rahab's house. Just the foundations, there's not much left. But that bit of wall stood all its time because of the faithfulness of that woman. Now, one of the problems with, I've noticed that somebody brought it up in the home group, one of the problems with Rahab, in the back of everyone's mind, is the scriptures clearly indicate that uh, no liar can enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet you've got this Rahab there. And not only is she there, but Hebrews 11, verse 31, she's held up as an example of faith and praised for her faith. 2 Thessalonians 2. No, not 2 Thessalonians. Yeah, James 2, sorry. In James 2, verse 25, James holds her up as an example of works which are made perfect her faith. The works were all the things that she did when the spies told her. She followed them exactly. And those works were works of faith which were acceptable to God. So all of the New Testament... They're praising Rahab right, left, and center. How do you explain the lies? Because she did deceive them, send them off. To understand that, you have to go back to... uh, I've missed a scripture, but it's going back to 1 Kings, I think it's verse 22. And you'll find there, there's a conversation in heaven about a king called Ahab. And he's an evil king, and God basically wants to get rid of him. <coughs> so he's asking his people in the court, what should we do about this man Ahab? And what does God, what does, a spirit goes forward to God and said, look, I'll deal with him. And he said, all right, how are you going to do it? He said, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And God, not the spirit, God says to them, you go and you be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. So he did. And all the prophets of Ahab said, Oh, king, go forth against them in battle. You'll have a mighty victory. And God still had a prophet, Micaiah, there saying, you, I see Israel scattered on the hills if you go forward. So the king sent Micah off to prison on bread and water and followed the lie of the prophets that... Uh, God had sent the lie too. And God had his will and purpose in doing that. He got rid of Ahab because he got killed. Now it's the same, there's no principle doesn't change in 2 Thessalonians in 2.10 and 11. God's speaking to the world there and he's saying, I'm going to send a spirit of delusion on you. If you won't believe the truth, I will make you believe a lie. So did Rahab lie? She didn't. It was God working through Rahab that brought his judgment 
on the sin of Jericho. And it was God's judgment of sin on that sin of that nation in that citadel that caused this whole of Jericho to be destroyed. And then Israel was able to enter into the promised land. But you see, when you're wholehearted for God, it's surprising how things will work out for you. But if you're complacent, you're not going to end up in terrible trouble. You won't make it. You've got the example of the uh, ten virgins. Five of them have lamps. They've all got lamps, but five haven't got the oil for the lamp. Only five have got the oil. That's God's word and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And you've got that. I think we're doing courses now in the church to get people moving in the Holy Spirit so that you can start to be obedient to the Spirit. Because in Romans 8.15, I think it is, you've got the example of where three or more are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. That's not to the church. That's only to mature Christians who are constantly being led by the Spirit of God. It's not a one-off thing. It's constantly. We've got to work at it so that we're daily led by the Spirit of God, and God's Spirit, when you do that, he's there in the midst. And that's going to become really important in the end of days, which are going to be very soon upon us. Because you've got one world church already organized, just waiting to go, along with one world government. And their primary target is going to be the church, Christians. So we need to get our act together now, make sure you Pay attention to that king of Sodom, young people. He's going to be having a go at you all the time. 